Welcome to this third episode of our special Nobel Prize editions of Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. Today, the Chemistry Prize. This year's prize is about how the optical microscope became a nanoscope. Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences Permanent Secretary Stefan Normark. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award the 2014 Nobel Prize in Chemistry to Dr. Erik Betzig at Hauduce Medical Institute, Ashbourne, uh, USA, Professor Stefan Hell at Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry, Göttingen, and the German Cancer Research Center, Heidelberg, Germany, and Professor William Murner at Stanford University, Stanford, USA, for the development of super-resolved fluorescence microscopy. A little background as you continue to listen. You'll hear the members of the committee refer to the Abbey diffraction limit or the Abbey condition. German physicist Ernst Abbey determined that you can only look at an object in a microscope in focus up to a certain size related to the wavelength of the light that you're shining on the object. The new Nobel laureates have come up with ways to get around that limit. A key way is that they're not really looking directly at the object to the tiny thing that they do want to look at. They add numerous little tags that fluoresce, that glow. Then they observe that fluorescence. If you add enough little tags, you see finely focused details. Just as if we dressed you in a suit covered with tiny little light bulbs, maybe the blue diodes whose inventors won yesterday's physics prize, and then watched you walk around in a dark room. We could see exactly where you are, how you're moving your limbs, etc. Okay, back to the announcement. Professor Sven Ledin will now give us a short summary, please. Thank you, Stefan. Could someone please do something about the resolution? That's a question that microscopists have asked for many years. Ever since the invention of the microscope, this has been the challenge. We see new things, but we see that there are more things to see. In 1873, Ernst Abbe proved that the theoretical limit to resolution is about half the wavelength of the light used. For visible light, that translates to about 200 nanometers. Now, a single human hair is about 100 micrometers. That's 500 times larger than this limit. So objects of that size are very easily studied with conventional microscopy. But most of the processes in chemistry and biochemistry take place at length scales that are much smaller. A typical bacterium is about 200 nanometers across, corresponding to the Abbe limit, which means that if we study bacteria in the light microscope, they will be featureless blobs. This price celebrates the circumvention of the Abbe condition. And three scientists have contributed to break this limit in two different ways. Stefan Hell developed stimulated emission depletion microscopy, STED, and Erik Betzig and W.E. Murner laid the foundations for a single fluorophore microscopy. Now, why is this important? Electron microscopy has a much higher resolution and can be used to study structures in atomic resolution. But electron microscopy does not allow us to study living cells 
or the processes within them. The work of the laureates uh, has made it possible to study molecular processes in real time. Uh, it's been used to study the dynamics of transcription and translation. That is the reading of DNA and the transference from that to proteins. It's enabled us to look at how proteins associated with disease aggregate, for example, in Alzheimer's, Huntington's, and Parkinson's disease. And it's even shown us the structural dynamic changes to neurons in the brain that takes place during learning processes. Super-resolution microscopy doesn't only tell us where, but also when and how. And that is the greatness of this development. Biology has turned to chemistry. Chemistry has turned into biology. Guesswork has turned into hard facts and obscurity has turned into clarity. Now, we can observe E. coli in all the glory of super-resolution without having to kill them, slice them, fixate them, and subject them to intense radiation and high vacuums. They can be studied in real time while they live long and prosper. We're now trying to uh, get hold of Professor Stefan Hell, and I think we have him online uh, from a phone uh, in Germany. Good day, Professor Hell. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. So, Professor Hell, I'm sitting here in the session hall at the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, and we have a number of journalists from all over the world that are here. And uh, I think some of them are eager to ask some questions. And, sure. And uh, here comes the first one. Uh, hello, Professor. Herzliche Glückwünsche. Congratulations. Dankeschön. Thank you. This is Swedish television, SVT, your live, uh, our live broadcast. Could you, something has already been said about your work. Could you describe the significance of it in your own words, please? Yes, I mean, um, in, um, light microscopy is very important to the life sciences because um, uh, the use of focused light is the only way that allows you to see living things. Um, however, the resolution of light microscopy was fundamentally limited to about, say, um, uh, fifths of uh, thousands per millimeter. And if you want to see, say, protein distributions at much higher um, uh, resolution at much smaller scales, this was simply impossible and definitely not in, in live cells. Now, um, what we have found is that uh, you can overcome this limit, you can see details at much, much higher spatial resolution, and this, of course, discloses how the cell works at the nanometer scale, so that's at a molecular scale, at a macromolecular scale. And this is, of course, very, very important to A, understanding how the cell works, and B, understanding what goes wrong if the cell is um, somehow diseased, if something, if a disease sets in or something. So it's very important for understanding um, physiology at cellular level and, of course, understanding disease at cellular level. If I may continue, um, sure. could, you, could you say something about how you got the idea? Yeah, so um, actually um, the reason uh, why I, I came across this um, this diffraction problem is what that I, I worked during my PhD thesis um, on uh, um, uh, light microscopy method called confocal microscopy method, but um, not 
for the life sciences, not for fluorescence. It was basically uh, for microstructure inspection. I got bored with the topic, so I felt this is kind of 19th century physics. And I was wondering whether there is still something profound that could be made with uh, light microscopy. And so I saw that diffraction barrier. That's the only, say, important problem that has been left over that people have saw that it would not be beatable, you cannot do anything about it, you have to resort to electromicroscopy if you want to see the nanoscale. And so I got attracted to this problem, and I started thinking about whether there's really, you know, say, physics or physical chemistry or chemistry to sort out the problem. And uh, eventually I realized that there must be a way by playing with the molecules. Trying to turn the molecules on and off allows you to see adjacent things um, that you couldn't see before. Okay. Thank you. Do we have some other questions to Professor Hell. Hello, and congratulations, Professor Hell. Thank you. My name is Joanna Rose. I am from a Swedish popular science magazine, Forskning of Ramsteg. Right. And how big was the challenge to put the molecules on and off? Well, um, um, there is... It is, of course, something that you have to realize first. You have to realize that there are methods of turning molecules on and off. Now, I realized, and this was explained by, by Professor Mons Ehrenberg, that you can turn molecules off by a phenomenon called stimulated emission. That's a very, very basic phenomenon. Um, every student learns about that um, in, in, the, in the first year. And after I realized that you can turn it on and off with stimulated emission, I, I knew that there are also other mechanisms for turning molecules on and off um, uh, that are very well uh, described in the literature, for example, um, uh, pumping things to a long-lived dark state or cis-trans isomerization and so on. And so uh, there are many, many ways of playing the same game. And um, this turned out to be, of course, very, very um, successful. So it's now a whole field, uh, um, uh, and you can, you can play it in this, this concept in many, many ways. You, can I continue? Just you mentioned actually in our magazine for about two years ago that yes, you were really on the verge of giving up. That's right. I mean, um, it's it's fair to say that the, um, the scientific community wasn't very receptive to the idea of overcoming the diffraction barrier because people believed this barrier has been around since 1873, and and the resolution is what it is, and and um, and doing something about it is if pardon me, kind of crazy and not, not, um, not very realistic to do. But um, having realized that you do not overcome the diffraction barrier just by trying to change the waves of light, but by playing with the molecules, changing the, the states of the molecules, I, I, I knew that this is going to work because I couldn't find a, a serious, say, physical or physical chemistry uh, reason why it would not work out. So this is why I was so confident and, and kept on going, despite all the issues and problems that came up in the interim. Okay, thank you. Do we have a, another question as well, over there? Sufficient um, Access Song, freelance for Chan Radio and also Green Post. Um, I think you, uh, congratulations, and uh, you, you sound still very calm, actually. So did you expect you win the prize? How did you feel when you hear no, the news? I, I, I was totally surprised. I was totally surprised. I, I couldn't believe it. But fortunately, I remembered uh, the voice of, of, of Professor Nurmark, and so I, I realized that this is real. And, 
And but it took me uh, took me a while to realize it. I must say. Okay, thank you very very much, Professor Hell. Um, and we are looking forward to to meet again uh, in December for the Nobel Prize ceremony and uh, our warmest congratulations. Thank you. So <clears throat> now I, I I turn to you. Uh, do you have any? Other questions or further questions to, to, to our experts? Jag undrar, finns det någon gräns för hur stor upplösningen eller hur stor upplösningen kan bli nu? Eller var är gränsen? Do you, can you take the answer in English? Yes. <laughs> This question is fielded by Nobel Chemistry Committee member Mans Ehrenberg. And uh, yeah, uh, the question was, uh, is there any limit that is still valid for the resolution you can get And the answer is, essentially, there is no strict physical limit, limit left. However, if you want to uh, have a very high resolution image of an organelle by uh, fluorescence labels, you must have labeled it properly. So you have labels everywhere, essentially. And so there may be a practical limit, but it's much, much lower than the limit that was set by Abbe, or understood by Abbe, 1873. 76. 1876. It, it was described. Yeah? And it was so uh, well believed, this limit. This is why Stefan Hell said, you know, I almost gave up. Because he was up against the physical limit, and most people who are up against the physical limit do not survive professionally. After the announcement, Swedish science journalist Joanna Rose spoke with Sven Ledin. Some people joked already that this chemistry prize was for a physics invention that's useful in biology. Ledin will explain that, though there's some truth in that idea, the chemistry aspect of super-resolved fluorescence microscopy is a really big deal. Sven Ledin, you are the chairman of the Nobel Committee in Chemistry uh, that just have awarded Uh, three Nobel laureates who have developed a new super-resolution microscope. Can you tell us what super-resolution is? How big or how small is it? Well, the super-resolution refers to Abbe's limit, uh, which states that a microscope can never be better, give a better resolution than half the wavelength of the light used. And the methods that has been developed by this year's laureates shows that this limit is not strictly enforced. Actually, it can be not only broken, but superseded to any resolution. Um, it's not applicable to any system. It, need, it means that we need to do some alterations to the system. First of all, we need to make them fluorescent. But if that is possible, uh, there is the physical limit is much, much further down, which means we can study much, much smaller objects. And this turns microscopy into a chemical technique, while it used to be a biological technique. So what new worlds can you see with this new microscope? Well, I think the easiest way to look at it is to, to think back to when microscopes were first used. So the first images that were drawn from microscopes, that started microbiology. Now, what is happening now is that Because we can see individual macromolecules moving about in a living cell, 
We can study chemistry at a single molecule level and in real life. And this is very, very important to chemistry because chemistry has traditionally been about studying a large number of molecules and the effect that they have. Here we can look at a single molecule as it is active in a chemical system. That means that rare events can be studied in a, in a very different way. Uh, reactions can be studied as they happen, not as the end result, but actually as they take place. Uh, it opens entirely new possibilities for chemistry and for biochemistry. So this is like uh, you previously could see an ant heel, and now you can follow every single ant. You can look at the legs of the ants, and you can look at the at the damage done to the legs of the ant. Yes, and and it's it's a fascinating subject, I think, because it is really a prize that goes into all the prize areas of of the scientific Nobel prizes. It has great potential in medicine. It is a prize which has a lot to do with physics, but it's also a prize that has a lot to do with chemistry. It's one of these prizes that eradicates the borders between the subjects. But when you think about microscopes today, there are already microscopes with this super resolution, and it's different kinds of electron microscopes. So what is yes. the difference? The big difference is that a light microscope is much less damaging to what it studies. If you want to study a cell by electron microscopy, first of all, you have to slice it very thinly because electrons only penetrate through a very small amount of matter. That means the cell is dead and you have to slice it, you have to fixate it with various kinds of stains to make um, the parts of within the cell visible. Um, this means that you do not have the dynamics you cannot study real-life processes. Um, and we have learned a lot from electron microscopy. It's a fantastic technique. But this takes us into the dynamic realm. And, and that is where real chemistry happens. You don't want the dead ants, so to say, to study. Dead ants are also interesting. And we learn a lot from dead ants. But live ants are better. And it's better for the ants, too. Um, this prize is awarded, actually, for two different microscopes. Uh, do they see different things as well? It's, it's really two different techniques, and they, they can be used on the same systems, but they, can all, they also have their own limitations. You asked before about the fact that what are the new limitations. Well, for anything that works with fluorescence, which both methods do, uh, you need to label the target of your study densely with fluorophores. And then you can see every individual fluorophore and thus the shape of the object that you're studying. Now, the, the kind of fluorophores that you can use are different for these two studies. Um, with the STED method that was developed by Stefan Hell, uh, you need to quench the fluorescence using a very powerful laser that takes away most of the fluorescence. This can cause damage to living cells, simply photon damage, the same that you will encounter if you go to the beach without enough sun protection factor. Um, too much light is not good for you. So there are certainly limitations to both techniques, and they are slightly different. And therefore, there is a complementarity here, but they also work very much on the same kinds of systems.
there's this common picture of inventors uh, like artists, mostly poor and hungry and passionate. <laughs> How do the this year's Nobel Prize laureates fit into this well, picture? Well, I think they fit very well. I think it fits particularly well when these when these inventors are doing something that is common knowledge is that it doesn't work. And so they it's an uphill struggle until they succeed. This is this is quite common actually in science and I don't think it's a bad sign. Science is rather protective of its paradigms and it needs to be protective of its paradigms. Now our laureates this year have changed those paradigms and that is good. But at the same time that these people have worked, we have had hundreds of people who have worked on trying to change paradigms that stood up to the challenge. The paradigms stood up to the challenge. Um, and it is important to to defend these paradigms as well. These are what builds science. Every now and then we need to change them. But if we change everything at the same time, then the ground on which we stand starts rocking. And most of these things are actually true. Most of the paradigms have a very long lifetime because they describe nature in a correct fashion. In this case, the Abbey condition is still valid. These persons simply found a way around them. That's very good. So you have to be quite a stubborn scientist. You have to be stubborn. You have to have a, a very high opinion of your own ideas. And you have to have stamina. Those are very important character traits when you are when you're battling with giants. <laughs> But did they give up? There are, there are stories from, from the, from the uh, autobiographies of both Eric Betzig and Stefan Hell that, that there, were, there were certainly periods of doubt. Uh, Eric Betzig left academia for some time because he considered that he was at a dead end. And uh, Stefan Hell moved around uh, a bit uh, in order to find a place where he could conduct this work. And he needed to to get a few theoretical studies in place to show that his ideas were valid. Um, so yes, I think they they were both on the verge of giving up, uh, but they came back to this question because it was so interesting, it was so alluring, and the possibilities were so fascinating. Little things mean a lot. Don't have to buy me. Diamonds and pearls, champagne, sables, or such. I never cared much for diamonds and pearls, cause honestly, honey, they just cost money.